the past three weeks we've been looking at uh, some of the Psalms, uh, beginning uh, with Psalm 84, 85, 86, this week 87. We just sang the psalm in uh, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. So many of the themes are brought out there so richly in that old hymn. Before we read the text, um, let me just say a word of why do the psalms. I, I, I enjoy preaching the psalms more than any other uh, any other sermons at this point in, in my life. It wasn't that way. Uh, from the beginning, it was the Psalms were kind of an intimidating thing to preach. They're they're different in, in how we we preach them and, and teach them. It took me a few years to, uh, to to figure out how to how to teach and how to preach them. But the idea um, with the the sermons starting back in 2014, and, and I found some notes from when I preached on Psalm 87 back then, as I was wrestling through whether to preach uh, the Psalms and how to preach the Psalms. Um, are an important. The Psalms are so important for our, for us as as Christians living in in a fallen world, in a world that is uh, that that is full of suffering, that is full of of doubt and despair, that is um, that is is filled with with broken relationships and difficulty in life, and the Psalms. Uh, more than any place else in the scripture, give us a, a language, words to deal with these types of of, uh, of life circumstances and and expressions. Uh, a couple of things have stood out to me as we've been studying this. Um, one I was reminded of. I don't think I've used this this quote as we've been getting into the Psalms yet. But um, one of my favorite bands, U2, lead singer Bono. Uh, met with Eugene Peterson, pastor and theologian, translator, a few years ago, uh, and and they sat down and they, they discussed uh, they discussed the Psalms, and uh, and Bono in that discussion was was exp- d- describing why he loves the Psalms so much, and here's here's what what essentially he said. He said, um, you know, the Psalms deal honestly with life. Some contemporary worship music lacks the range of raw emotions um, that are contained within the psalms. Ever notice that? That, uh, that oftentimes songs, especially more contemporary songs, but old songs do as well, try to express what we want to feel, but oftentimes they lack what we actually are feeling, experiencing in life. Bono goes on to say, I want to hear a song about the breakdown in your marriage. I want to hear songs of justice. I want to hear rage at injustice. And I want to hear a song so good that it makes people want to do something about the subject. The Psalms, John Calvin says, are an anatomy of all parts of the soul. There's not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. And Tremper Longman, another uh, modern-day theologian, uh, says, points out how God is present in every corner of his creation. He's with us whether we are at work or at home, shopping or studying, in the city or in the country. 
at sea or on land. He is everywhere. The Psalms give expression to what we truly experience in life. Not some kind of pie in the sky, wishing, wanting. We read about that earlier in what the hope of heaven is, a new heaven and a new earth where sin and death are done away with, where suffering is no more. But in the meantime, we have to get on with life. And this life is not outside of God's control, His sovereign control. This life has meaning and purpose. And the Psalms give words to our emotions, help us to express our cries to God, our need for help, our understanding of something of what God might be trying to do in a particular circumstance. Psalms take us oftentimes on journeys from places of crying out in joy or in depression or despair, and they lead us to a better understanding of who God is and how He's present, what kind of solutions He proposes and, and teaches, but also more significantly and more commonly, how he walks with us through valleys of death and sorrow and then lifts us up to rejoice with him. Today's psalm, Psalm 87, is a psalm of longing for that heavenly city. It helps us to set our hope on things above. Some of the language is old. Some of the places are unfamiliar. But when we understand what it is, it can be a a tool in in our tool belt to help us to desire God's good things, His dwelling, and most of all, His presence with us. Psalm 87 begins this way, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as He registers the people's. This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. This is God's word. Pray with me. Our Lord and our God, will you open our eyes to see these glorious things that are spoken of Zion, the place where you dwell. Will you help us to see our lives, our presence even now lifted up with you in these heavenly places? 
that we would delight to be in your presence. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark Twain, the comedian, writer, famously described heaven as a place with soggy clouds and half-tuned harps. Not really any desire to go there himself. He lambasted the idea of heaven in God, undermining it every step. We don't need Mark Twain's help. Our own visions of what heaven is and where it is and what we'll be doing in it are all woefully short of the realities that are presented in God's word. We wonder how we'll spend all of our day being promised eternity with God. We think, how soon till we get bored? Will the songs be any better? I love our music at Parkside, but still, still there's longing with any music. Honestly, I think our music here at the church is probably the best that I've heard in San Diego. But still there is a longing, a questioning. Will there be something that can hold our attention? That can keep us there? Entertainment reigns the day. Today, we want to be entertained. That's nothing new either. In fact, if you look back over history, it's interesting to read of old famous preachers, John Newton being one of them, others who would attract hordes of people. And oftentimes, sadly, the hordes of people would come because they wanted to be entertained by an effective communicator. And when that communicator left, if they were a traveling evangelist at times, the attendance at the churches would fall again. Apostle Paul famously praised God that he wasn't eloquent in his speech. He didn't want that eloquence to get in the way of the message, the substance of the gospel itself. That in Jesus Christ, salvation had come. For not just the people of Jerusalem or the people of Judah or Israel, but for the whole world. Apostle Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. And this song, this psalm, delights and tells the story of Jerusalem or Zion, the city of God, being a city where not just the people who had descended from Jacob, before him Isaac and Abraham would come to worship God and experience God, but where the people from all the nations, the four corners of the globe are represented, all kinds of different people would gather together to worship the God who made all of heaven and all of earth. Everything in them was made by him. And God desires for all of those nations to experience salvation. And so it's important to point out at this early point, I'm not going to dwell on this much, the distinction between Zionism and the gathering of God's people in the city of God, the new Jerusalem. See, Zionism looks to the founding of a nation in Israel, a rebuilding of the temple for hope that God is going to return and dwell in his temple. It's prevalent in many circles and many spheres in the church today. And while Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, is a positive response to 
serious oppression of the Jewish people and the issues in the Middle East, in particular around the nation of Israel, are manifold and complicated. The promise that God is with his people, the promise of a new Jerusalem, does not depend on the rebuilding of the temple there, where Jesus identifies himself with his disciples as the temple that needs to be rebuilt in three days. Tear down this temple, he says to his disciples, and I will build it, rebuild it. It will be rebuilt in three days, which is satisfied in his resurrection. The image of the temple is expanded in Jesus' language, and he explains that we are living stones, with him being the cornerstone. And in that, we are the dwelling place of God. And so Paul can say in his letter to the Galatians, the church is the Israel of God. For the dwelling place of God will be with man. We will be living with God. It is true now that Jesus has come up and come and taken residence in us and is building us up as his living stones, as a dwelling place. And what is the function of that dwelling place in Jerusalem and in us now, but for us to know God personally and make him known to other people around. For Jerusalem stood as a monument, not just to the people of Israel, but a monument to the people of all nations who would gather and come together and see something of the glory of God so that they would be called to him and know his salvation. I say this frequently, I don't think I can say it enough, that when God called Abraham to follow him back in Genesis 12, very first conversation with Abram at the time, who becomes Abraham, he says, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to all peoples or all nations or all families. The purpose is stated at the very beginning and it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ and the expansion of the gospel and it's still being carried out by his church, the temple that exists today in us. And it's summarized in verse 4 of this Psalm, written hundreds of years before Jesus came. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab. Rahab is another name for Egypt to the south. And Babylon, the nation that would be used by God to bring correction, judgment on the city of Jerusalem itself. Philistia, coastal city to the west, military place. Goliath, famously Philistine, warring constantly with God's people in Israel and Tyre. A wealthy commercial city to the north, also on the coast. Representing the four points of the compass there, but he adds even Cush, which is a reference to Ethiopia. It says, this person was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. 
It's not entirely clear how those phrases should be read, but you notice in this psalm that same phrase was used three times. This one was born there. This one and that one were born in her. Verse 6, this one was born there. Referencing what is very clear by the end of the whole string, that even though these people were from different nations, born in different places, God was declaring of them that they are citizens of the city of Jerusalem. Naturalized citizens, better than naturalized citizens, they were declared as if having been born there. The United States, many nations have this policy. Somebody who's born on the soil, whether they're born to foreigners or not, is declared a citizen of the country. One who is born in Jerusalem is a citizen of that city. The nations come to the holy city of Jerusalem to receive the salvation that God has worked for all of the nations. And the beauty of that display is shown in Acts chapter 2 when after Jesus is raised from the dead, conquering sin and death, and is ascended into heaven, one of the first things that happen on the occasion of the festival of Pentecost is that the nations have gathered together people from all kinds of places, Jews who have been dispersed to different places, but also foreigners who are there and and seeking and wondering about God are gathered together in the city of Jerusalem. And famously, the apostles are given a miraculous ability to speak in the languages of the people in tongues so that the people can hear the message of the gospel that Jesus has done all these things for the salvation of the nations. This psalm is not simply a Zionistic psalm in a sense that we oftentimes hear it today. It is a psalm of Zion being the salvation of all nations, of all peoples who would come and worship God. Now this, this concept of worshiping God is a, is a difficult concept. Because in order to worship God, it means, it requires that we admit something about ourselves. That we like to be the subject of our own worship. In fact, we don't have to be taught this. We, don't, we are born with this ability. We want to be worshipped. As children, oftentimes we experience it, how cute we are and how adorable children are and all kinds of attention is showered on them, rightly so. But still, children or adults, if we see ourselves as the object of our own worship or even more dangerous and more common, wanting the worship of others for ourselves. It stands as a wall, a barrier, from our ability to worship God who is worthy of the worship. See, why, why why do we have difficulty coming before God and giving him our whole lives? Why do others have difficulty coming to God? It's because ultimately it requires a giving up of some control of our lives. 
to worship God is to admit that we are not the center of the universe. To worship God requires us to acknowledge that sin has entered into the world and we are guilty of sin against God and against one another. Adam and Eve were created in this beautiful garden. Perfect. Death was not present. They would live forever. Provision was plentiful. All the trees in the garden were good for eating. Except one. And in their act of defiance, and of self-worship, deceived by the evil one, Satan in the form of a serpent, the one tree they weren't supposed to eat of would give them the knowledge of the good and evil, which represents essentially a worshiping of themselves. They wanted something for themselves that was ultimately God's. And so they took hold of it, and with that knowledge entered death into the world. Now this garden is an interesting place. With death, they were sent out of the garden so that they wouldn't live forever, so that they wouldn't live forever in this corrupted state. And so part of them being banished from the garden was an act of grace. That death, that death would come And the hope would be for a restored garden. The story from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21 and 22 is the story of a perfect garden created for humanity that leads to a garden city that is perfected, remade, renewed, but vastly more densely populated without sin, without death, without suffering, and without decay. And there's an interesting image in this garden that this psalm picks up on in the very last verse when it says, All my springs are in you. See, the city of Zion, or Jerusalem, if you know the city, the city sits on not a high mount, but a high enough mount. And it's, it's a bit unique in some of the cities in that area because there's no river that runs through Jerusalem. It's not a water passageway. You can't get to the Mediterranean Sea by any river that's anywhere close. The closest river is the Jordan River, which is quite a journey, especially by foot, to even get to the river. There is no river in Jerusalem. And yet the image of waters flowing out of Jerusalem to water To water the desert that is around Jerusalem is one that's repeated multiple times throughout the scriptures. Isaiah mentions it. The image is there in Genesis. It's revisited in Revelation. A watering of the things that come from the city of Jerusalem. Now this psalm may have been written by King Hezekiah. Hezekiah is famous for a couple of reasons. One, he was a good king of Judah. Not all the kings were good. In fact, a majority of the kings were not good in Judah's history. It's an interesting note there that, that, that 
most kingdoms, most histories of kingdoms in the ancient world don't really mention the, the bad kings that much. They kind of write them out of history. But the story of Israel's history that's recorded in the scriptures, in Samuel, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, also Joshua and Judges, is distinct from many of the histories of nations in that it declares that many of the rulers, many of the people, did evil, wicked things. It's not a whitewashed presentation of history. And yet, these rulers exercised authority in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, or Zion, was also the city that was known for killing the prophets that were sent from God. It was not exactly a holy place in many senses of the word. And yet, in the Psalms and in the Scripture, we see this image of springs flowing out of Jerusalem that arises over and over to water other things. Hezekiah mentioned two things. He was a good king, but he also built famously a, a, a spring or a tunnel or a, a canal, an underground canal, a secret canal that provided water to the city inside the city walls from outside the city walls that was secret and saved the people during his kingdom and in other times when, when the city was, uh, was besieged and there was no other water source, they still had water. So there was no water actually in the city walls of Jerusalem. I mean, it was dry. It was dry. I've walked through that tunnel. It's a fascinating tunnel, and there's still water flowing through it. It's, it was a source from outside. And so why would Zion or Jerusalem be presented as the place where water springs out to other places and to everything else in waters, except in an image that's meant to communicate something far greater than water itself? See, the image of the water, water being life-giving, Water providing uh, growth for the trees, the fruit trees on either side, both in Genesis and in Revelation. The water points to the salvation that, G that God was working out of the center of the city of Jerusalem for the world. And it begins in Jerusalem. Again, in Acts, the message of the gospel, it begins in Jerusalem and it spreads to, to all of Israel. And then to the ends of the earth. The message of salvation springs forth there. And it comes from God's presence there and is working. And it ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus being crucified in the city. The city that killed the prophets. Killed Jesus the prophet. You say, well, it was the Romans who did it. But of course, it was... It was the Jews and the Romans together, and we don't come up against this and say this is just a message against the Jews because the Jews and the Romans in that situation represent all of humanity. See, in our declaration that we want to worship ourselves, that we don't want to worship God, that we choose to not listen to God's commands to us, and we want to do it our own way, we are saying to Jesus, we don't need your salvation. We don't want it. Or at least like his disciples who gradually fell away on the night, we're not sure if he can really do it. I think that's where most of us who are Christians fall in the day-to-day -day life and in the practices. We, we feel like Jesus, Jesus is good, and, and, but we aren't quite sure if he can really do what he says he's going to do. 
And so our life is filled not with soggy clouds and half-tuned instruments, but half-hearted belief that Jesus is faithful to what he's said he will do. Half-hearted trust that the glory of God's city will be as great as what is professed here in Psalm 87. Because we've experienced difficulty and hurt in various churches, among various people who are part of God's people. We wonder, can this thing really be true and good? Now it's helpful to mention one thing about what's happening in this and tie it to something that's relevant to the church and that's helpful in understanding not only the scripture, but how the church acts today as a fulfillment of God's promises. And that is that those who are written in this book that he describes there, recording of citizenship, this one was born there, and of Zion it should be said, this one and that one were born in her. The Lord records as he registers the people's this one was born there. It's referring to a, a logbook, a record, a register of the people. And not every census in the Bible is bad. God tells his people one time, don't take a census, just trust me. And then, of course, famously, the census that Caesar Augustus declares when Jesus is born ends up bringing him to Bethlehem and works to fulfill some of the promises. But a census of the people declared where your citizenship was. Now, not every person who was written in the book of citizens of Jerusalem was a God follower. From the king down to the poorest of people, from the oldest to the youngest, there were some who followed God and some who rejected him, even as their name was recorded in the books. closest thing we have to this today is the record of church membership. When somebody is baptized into the church, they are baptized as a member of the church. Their name is written in the register of the church. When someone joins the church from another church or transfers membership, their name is written in the church. When someone comes to believe in Jesus for the first time, they are baptized as an adult or as an older child. And their name is written in the register of the church. We in the Presbyterian church even take vows to that extent to declare our commitment to the church publicly. But again, not everyone whose name is written in the roles of the church is a part of the church. You remember Jesus and speaking with people, he says, has people come to him and they say, we prophesied in your name, we spoke of you, we did all of these things in your name. And what does Jesus famously say? I never knew you. Their name was physically written someplace and they declared it all over the but, but I never, I never knew you. And he probably read right over this.
But in this psalm, verse 4, it says, Among those who know me, I mention Rahab, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Cush. See, it's not a a matter of of our names being written someplace. It's helpful and it's good for your names to be written in those places, in those physical things. They correspond. If you're not a member of the church, become a member of the church. It declares your commitment to follow Christ. If you're still questioning that, there are all kinds of places, room for discussion and understanding that better. Don't feel like you have to do it just based on this. But the point of this is not simply that your name is written someplace Physically, it's that you know the living God and corresponding to that is again a famous reference that's both in Revelation and in one of Paul's letters that's called the book of life. But this is God's book that we can't write in. It's a book that's written in indelible ink that can never be removed. And in that book of life is written the names of all those who have and who will believe in the name of Jesus for salvation. And here's a note of assurance for us that it's not based on what we do or even what we say. It's based on God's faithfulness to save those whom he has called. All kinds of debates and disputes have arisen over that doctrine, sometimes called um, predestination or election. But what that is meant to communicate is that though you may stumble and suffer and go through doubt and despair in valleys where you feel like God is far from you, God is saying to you that it's never truly up to you to hang on to me. Over and over in the scriptures, there are commands, hang on, hang on to God. But the comfort is that when we fail and when our hand releases because we've been trying to hold on so long, that it's God who ultimately holds us in to his place. It draws us to that city of Jerusalem that assures us over and over again that though you try to run from me, He says, I am the hound of heaven who pursues after you. Those whom I know, know me as well. It's not about checking boxes. It's not about doing certain things. It's about knowing the living God. Not saying to God, I don't need to know you. Things are fine right now. I've got this in control. I don't like some of the things that you tell me I should do. Do any of us like the things that any, all, any of our friends, all of our friends tell us to do? By the way, if, if you've never had a conversation with somebody that you didn't like something they said, you probably don't know them very well as a friend. If you think that God is just a perfected version of who you think you should be, And he never tells you something you don't want to hear. It's not actually God who you're thinking about. But the God who made you and who knows you and knows better than anything, far better than us, what we need and what we should do. 
says to us, not just, here's what you should do. Here are the rules. Follow the rules, and everything will go right. He says, I want to know you, and I want you to know me. I want to live with you in the same house. This morning we were talking, talking with some people. We've had visitors recently in our house. You know, sometimes houses can be crowded. God says, I want to live in the same house with you, and I'm going to make space. That we will delight to be in the same place together. By the way, all those things that you do and you, 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 you aren't very good at cleaning up after yourself and, and you, you're annoying at this time of the day, I'm going to live with you. I know you. And I love you. And when Jesus came to the city of Jerusalem, among people who said, we don't want you in this space, You have no place in our temple. You have no place in the palace. You have no place anywhere in this city. Jesus said, I know, but I still want to love you and reconcile you to me. And on that occasion in Acts 2, when all those nations were gathered, some 3,000 people heard and believed the gospel. And even to this day, the nations continue to hear more and more are believing, believing every day. Sometimes we despair in our, our American culture that seems like uh, Christianity is on the decline and, and, and at odds with different parts of the culture. But globally, globally, the gospel continues to advance in record numbers. And even locally, the gospel continues to advance in hearts and minds of our neighbors and friends. Especially, especially when they hear the invitation, come with me to Zion. Come with me and see that the Lord is good. Come with me and see what happens when you confess your sins to God. He doesn't say, go away, come back when you got everything together. We'll see you in another year. He says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come to me and reside in the city. Glorious things of you are spoken, Zion, city of this God, a city of God. Look at all the people in here. There's some from Rahab and some from Babylon and some from Philistia and some from Tyre and some from Cush. Look at the diversity of people. I mentioned the the four points on the compass and the national diversity, but these people were also known for various sins and, and troubles. As if to represent the congregation of Jesus Christ. Where one pastor friend described the congregation and he said, I had somebody come to me one time and he said, I like the message you're preaching. I like the experience I have here, but I don't know if I can be accepted here. You see, I'm a recovering addict, substance abuser. And my pastor friend took him aside in a place where they were kind of quiet and just could see the congregation lingering after the service. And he said, I'm not going to point out any people or, or name any names, 
But I want you to look out over the congregation and know that there are multiple people who are recovering from various addictions, whether it be to alcohol or drugs or pornography. There are multiple people in here whose marriages are in terrible shambles, though you may not be able to see it from the outside. There are multiple people here who are struggling with issues in their workplace or have confessed grievous sins against other people. Then he joked that many are just plain old workaholics and have escaped the difficulty of true relationship by burying themselves in their work. The man said, I think I can find a place here. When you bring your sins to Jesus, he's not wanting to just hang them out in front of everybody. He's just wanting you to be honest with him and say, I'm sorry, and for you to hear his words, I forgive you. More than that, I've paid the debt for your sin. I may ask you to do some difficult things and reconciling relationships with other people, but I don't need to add shame to the guilt you already feel. I've come to bring good news of redemption and restoration. Glorious things of your spoken city of God that contains all of these people and you and me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you pursue us and sustain us. You preserve us and you sanctify us. Will you give us a love for you that is based on your love for us? Hold us in tight and send us out with the good news of salvation as your ambassadors to the nations, to our neighbors our friends and co-workers. Set deep in our hearts a delight to be named among your citizens of this great city. Great and small, old and young, rich and poor are all found to be poor in spirit apart from you, but made rich because you've shared your inheritance with us, Jesus. Help us to desire this city and to pursue this type of justice and goodness in our places and our spheres of influence. When we see the hurt man along the road to Jericho, dangerous and almost dying, to not pass by as the priest and Levite, whose names were written in certain books, but to stop as the Samaritan did, whose name was written in a different book, 
by the people, but written in your book. Give us hearts of compassion to engage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.